Welcome. This is Cascade Church Portland's podcast. We exist to invite all people to join us as we follow Jesus together in bringing heaven to earth. Uh, I want to tell you uh, a story, which is always the best way to introduce a story. Uh, So this is the summer. It's wedding season. And one of my favorite wedding stories of all time is told by my friend Evan. Evan went to this wedding in Spokane, Washington. It was on their family's farm. So it's this kind of big, beautiful location, this big field uh, in the middle of the summer, and they get into the message. And sometimes, uh, I know this as a pastor, sometimes people ask you to do the wedding and you don't know them at all. And this is one of those situations where the pastor didn't know the couple who was being married. And uh, so he got going, he's doing the wedding, and then... um, Usually, you have a part where, like, there's the I do's, you're familiar, right? The rings, you put on the rings, you do all these pieces. But there's also the part of the wedding where, like, the pastor's going to vamp for a little bit, right? Usually, they're prepared, but, right, they're going to speak for a little bit. They have their remarks. So he got started, and usually, this is my theory when it comes to doing weddings. I may not be able to do it well, but I can be short. You know what I mean? If you don't know, and this is a, a good rule for public speaking, you, you don't always know if it's going to work, but you can be timely. He went going and went going and went going. He uh, hit oh, just over 30 minutes just with his remarks. And some of my favorite f- parts about this is in his remarks, he went deep into Greek uh, and said, hey, how many biblical uh, language nerds are in the audience? He called them the audience and called for a raise of hands. Uh, Guess how many hands went up? Zero. That's right. Yeah, that's when you know you do a good call, when you get zero hands up. Uh, And then, and really my favorite part of this, is after 25 minutes, he goes, well, in addition to being a biblical language nerd, I'm also a bit of a Trekkie. And then he started explaining the entirety of the plot of Star Trek IV, where they go back in time to find the humpback whales. I don't know if anyone knows this. They're looking for humpback whales, and he's going into depth in their wedding about the humpback whales, and he's like, and then later, Captain Kirk, you know, they're having a beer and some pizza, and they're talking, and it's like, what is going on? So, this image is a screen grab because my friend Evan told the story for so long. And then years later, we got this email with like 15 exclamation points. They filmed it and someone put it up on YouTube. The wedding, and it's called Awkward Wedding Moment, which I'm sure if you put that into YouTube, you'll get lots and lots of results. But what happened is that man standing up, right about the time they talked about Captain Kirk getting pizza and beer, he was a hired hand that worked on the farm. And he stood up and said, hey, I don't want to be rude or anything, but can we just marry him already? And if you watch the video, a little bit of salty language as well gets tossed in there. (laughs) And he goes, I don't want to ruin the wedding or anything, which is a great line. If you have to say, I don't want to ruin the wedding or anything, (laughs) chances are high you're ruining a wedding. And then, like, sits down, and then this is the best part of the story. The pastor pauses for a while and goes right back to his story. He just keeps on going. He's like, where was I? That's right, the Trekkies. And like a champ, just a pro, finished out the wedding. The reason why I share that story is, one, I really enjoy it. I think it's really fun, and it's instructional, like, don't do that at a wedding. 
But two, it's kind of a manifestation of one of my greatest fears. Do you know what, when they talk about the, the top fears, when people like put down, this is my greatest fear, what is normally number one? Yeah, public speaking, that's right. Which I think it should be anacondas um, or like Shark Week. It should be something like that, but it's public speaking. And I think part of the reason why public speaking is such a huge fear is because of moments like this. That someone will stand up or someone will sit there and silently judge you and the things you're saying, you're going to be exposed as a fraud. They ultimately, they don't think you're worth listening to. They don't think what you're saying is true or interesting. And as a person who has, as a pastor, I'll call it holy slumber, put many people to sleep. Uh, that's why the windows are open. We're hoping to get a little breeze going through here so you don't doze off on me. But there's something about speaking and being in front of people that's daunting. It's scary, and it can start to knock on the door of your greatest fears. Who I am doesn't have value. What I have to say doesn't matter. And that as I'm sharing and as I'm talking and as I'm ta- like putting this thing out there, it's going to be exposed that no one cares. They're not interested. And the reason why I share that this morning is we're going to look at a story continuing in our message series in Numbers that I think is a lot like this moment. The greatest fears of the the main character of this story, Moses, I think are being realized in this rebellion. So if you brought your Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to Numbers 16. If you don't have a Bible either on your, your device or with you, that's fine. We'll have... Uh, the relevant scriptures up on the screen. We are going to kind of hop around the story a little bit. And my encouragement to you is uh, later today, sometime this week, go back and read through number 16. And there's a really fascinating that kind of tags onto it in 17 that we won't be looking at today. So let's start looking at number 16, one through five. Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abram, sons of Eliab, and On, which is a great name, son of Pelath, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy. Every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? So one thing that's uh, interesting about this is in the story of Moses, Moses actually comes from this lineage of Levi. And they talk about there are other people that are born from the lineage of Levi. Why that matters is that the nation of Israel is divided into 12 different tribes or groups. And it has to do with who they come from. Everyone who comes from Levi is a Levite, and in there, uh, these are the people that run all of the temple activities. Uh, They do all the priestly duties. And so uh, Aaron, who is um, related to Moses, he is like the head of these priests of Aaron. So they're coming. They're also other priests, and they're saying, why are you doing this? Now, in these Hebrew scriptures, one of the things that's really interesting, because we don't really have an equivalent with the New Testament and in Christian scriptures, is in Jewish texts, you have the, the holy um, 
sacred text. And then you have this other document called the Midrash. And the Midrash is a commentary that talks about different stories. And a lot of times in the Midrash, they'll bring up things that aren't in the stories. And so it becomes really interesting. And this is what I love, just as an aside. The Midrash text, they aren't saying, hey, this is a detail they forgot. They're like, this is when we talk about this story, this is a point or this is an idea that gets talked about as well. And so it helps bring another perspective, another idea to the story. In the Midrash of this text, it says that these priests of Levi and Moses and Aaron walked around with like a white outer garment and it had one blue line on it. And the idea of that was to talk about there was this, this line of holiness that they were a part of, but it was a small part of ultimately who they were. And what they say is when Korah in this rebellion, all the Levites came, they came in uh, cloaks that were full blue. All, like they're like, all the threads are blue. Which had this really, it has a really powerful kind of visual to it. That they're threatening this idea, not threatening, they're, they're calling into uh, account this idea that why are you above everyone else? Ultimately, this God is all of our gods. It's not just you. Who put you in charge? Who said you should be the one that is leading us? Actually, all of us should be in charge. All of us should be leading, which is kind of a beautiful thought. I mean, there's something beautiful about saying that there isn't just this leader or this appointed person, but there's actually something for all of us to lead and to do. And I want to be careful as we talk through this. There's one way of saying, well, I mean, everybody's in charge. It just goes to anarchy. I don't know about that, actually. I actually think that more of our leadership should be more representative of the people that are to be led. There's all kinds of perspectives and there's ways of viewing the world and engaging the world that any individual can't see or do. And until we have more people leading, it's actually beneficial. It's helpful. I don't think that's what's happening in this story is they're saying, hey, you need one leader all the time and that's the only way things get done. I think there's something a little deeper that's going on. Let's continue on in the story in verses four and five. When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all of his followers, In the morning the Lord will show you who belongs to him and who is holy. He will have that person come near him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. Now, this is one of the fun things about the Bible, um, or it can be frustrating, is that we just have the words, but we don't have inflection and tone. And so sometimes what's really important to kind of pull out inflection, which is, again, just our best guess, is we look at, well, what's happening in the story? So the first thing Moses does here is he falls face down, which isn't a sign of alpha dog, you know, alpha maleness. It's not like, oh, you're coming at me, bro? I'm going to fall face down in front of you. It's, it's a sign of humility. It's a sign of, and we're going to talk about this. I think when they come and say this to Moses, Moses is like, I know. I know. I don't want to be doing this any more than you want me to be wanting to do this. And we're going to look at the scriptures that say this. This wasn't my idea. In fact, the thing you're saying is my greatest fear. I didn't think Moses was talking about Star Trek, but he's kind of getting called out very publicly and I think what is his greatest fear. 
He falls face down, and then he says, in the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy. How I interpret this because he falls face down, and you're free to to read it and say, I have a different interpretation. That's good. You should wrestle with it and look at it. I think he's saying, look, let's let God call this. Let's let God be the one that decides this and leads this. I don't think it's like, oh, you're coming at me? What's let God decide? Because we all know whose side God's on. I'm packing the big guns. Tomorrow you're getting taken out. I think this is a sign of humility. As we move farther in the story in 16, verses 12 through 14, then Moses summoned Dathan and Abram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us out brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you also want to lord it over us? Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. By the way, that slaves line is a sick burn. What he's calling back into a question is saying, you've made us slaves quick reminder, what did Moses do? He brought them out of slavery. And what they're saying is, no, 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 this is just a new kind of slavery. This is the same system. You're just a new pharaoh. And in fact, we're in a more desolate place. If we're going to be dominated by someone, it'd be better to be dominated and to be slaves in Egypt where at least we had cucumbers and leeks. And you might remember some of these lines. The other thing that's fascinating about what they say to him is last week, Harriet in her message talked about how just before this, they go, the spies go and they view the land and they come back and they're like, there's no way we should go. And so they don't. And God sends them back into the wilderness. And I encourage you to go online and listen to Harriet's message because Harriet does a great job of pulling out how that actually can be a line of grace they weren't ready for this blessing yet. This wasn't a punishment of them. They didn't have enough faith. This was a, the wilderness still needs to shape your experience that you can enter into this. What's hilarious is now they're saying, you let us out to bring us into this promised land and you haven't even delivered on that promise, which wasn't Moses. Moses didn't say we shouldn't go in. It was the spies who lacked the faith. What's interesting when we see here, and I think what some of what's being illustrated, is that there's an attack against Moses that is, is divorced from reality. And usually you can tell in these kind of accusations and these ways of going, when it gets divorced from reality, when it's not true or there's just little sections or slivers of truth, this is where we get into this place where you say, well, what, what are we really talking about here? These the accusations you're bringing again, they don't even make any sense. The reason why I bring that out is because we have, at different times in our lives, felt, felt the accusations of others. And what's really hard is when you're in a one-on-one situation and someone is confidently telling you you're the worst or you failed at something or you're not good at something, it's difficult with just two points to know, well, what's really true here? And there's a way where a lot of times we can just take on the anxiety of the other person. We can take on the accusations of the other person. Like, I don't know, they were loud and forceful. It might be true. And usually the reason why it stings so much and causes us to entertain is there's a sliver of truth in there. 
They are not in the promised land. That's true. They're not in a more fertile land like Egypt. That's true. And these little slivers of truth are being used to attack Moses. Imagine how that would feel, how that would sting. Continuing on in verse 19. When Korah had gathered all of his followers in opposition to them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourself from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? By the way, if you are a student in school and you ever get in trouble in class for what one person does, number 1622 is a great verse just to call out. I mean, I don't know how that's going to work. If you go to a Christian school, you for sure should know that one. Uh, But I remember so many times getting in trouble in school. We're like, it was just Timmy, the paste eater. Why are we all missing recess because of what he does? There's this call again that God's coming and saying, why am I wasting my time? Which is a fascinating concept. I don't know that time really impacts God. God is saying, why do I continue to try and lead these people to a freedom that they won't receive? Why do I continue to take this people into a place they aren't willing to go? And there's complaints and there's indictments. I love this picture because there is a frustration from God. Now, some of you might say, I prefer my God frustration-free. Thank you very much. Here's why I think a God who becomes frustrated is helpful and a grace to us. When we become frustrated, we know that we are created by a God who has also faced frustration, a God who has voiced frustration. And in that place, then we know that when we feel a frustration, that's not an emotion to be ignored or suppressed, but one to sit with and say, why is this here? Why do I feel frustrated is way more interesting than giving in to frustration or avoiding frustration. Because this is something that God demonstrates. God demonstrates this kind of frustration. All right, moving to the end of the story, and just to kind of fill in some of the gaps, they ultimately call all these Levite priests. They have Korah and his rebellion, and you have Moses and Aaron. They light the incense that was a part of their temple ritual. They gather together. Everyone's kind of with Korah. God's like, I'm just going to destroy them all. Moses and Aaron are like, no, 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 please don't. Uh, They separate out, and they're like, okay, if Korah dies of natural causes, and it's on his death certificate, then clearly what he says has merit. But if God intervenes and there's another death here, this is a demonstration of ultimately who God wants to lead this people. And then in some real dramatic movement, as soon as he finished saying all this, the ground other than split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. That is terrifying. It's horrific to see what happens, that there's this rebellion that swells up in a day and they're swallowed up after that. And the reason why I say that is there's usually a rush when you feel that tension of like, whoa, 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 
we're at a church and we're, we're, we just sang worship songs to a God, like infinite expanding universe. I, I paid attention to that part of the song. And that guy just swallowed up people. If that was in a movie, I wouldn't call it a religious film. That would be a horror film. The ground opens up. That's like tremors on steroids. Why is this happening? By the way, I like all my movie references to be 80s, 90s, and super relevant. <laughs> I need to update. I know that. <clears throat> Sit with the tension of that. Why is this happening? What's going on that we have this? Usually when we start to feel this discomfort and we sit with it, we don't want to sit with it very long. And so we avoid it and we move on or we quickly explain it. And usually the way that this story is taught is like, this is what you get for disrupting authority. I, I don't think that's the teaching of this. I don't think that what this is saying is you don't question authority or you never move up and say, why are you leading in this way? I think this is more a demonstration with the way in which Moses was questioned, the way in which Moses was called out for who he was and what he was doing. It was a demonstration of the faithlessness of a whole people that was manifest in Korah in this rebellion. Now, I said earlier that I think, and where I want to talk about for the rest of our time this morning, is I think this accusation from Korah and the fact that Moses falls face down is because this is the manifestation of his very worst fears. And the reason why I say that is that this whole story starts with Moses in a burning bush. To give a little bit of the backdrop before that, uh, if you're not familiar with the story, you have the Israelites who come into Egypt through Joseph and his family. Joseph is the kid with the Technicolor dream coat, uh, best played by Donny Osmond. Uh, he gets put into a hole, taken by slave traders out into Egypt. He rises to prominence, is ultimately in charge of the storehouses of food during a famine, which makes him a very important person. Because of this, the Israelite people, which is then a family, comes into Egypt, and then they start spreading and getting bigger and bigger. Pharaoh sees this, and as Harriet showed us on the map last week, starts sectioning them off to northern Egypt and to say, you stay there until there's too many of them and ultimately enslaves them. So during this time when the Israelites are being enslaved, they're also being persecuted, and there's this movement to kill all of the young boys. Moses barely escapes this as he's newly born because his mom puts him on a raft and floats him up the river. He gets found by Pharaoh's daughter, and in just a great storytelling technique, she's like, a baby? This baby's still of breastfeeding age. We need to find, and it's a Hebrew boy, we need to find a Hebrew mother who could nurse this child wherever could we find one, and hires Moses' mother to breastfeed him, to keep him alive. She just got paid for what she was doing for free, like 45 minutes before. That's a pretty good deal. If we avoid the infanticide, there's lots of kids dying at the same time. I'm sorry, that's true. So what we have now is Moses is raised up in Pharaoh's household. So what would that mean? That would mean education. That would mean privilege. That would mean having all kinds of opportunities that other people don't. 
ultimately, Moses, as he gets older, he goes out into the city. He sees his own people being treated poorly and being enslaved. And he sees one where the Egyptian slaveholders is whipping a Hebrew. He becomes enraged and kills the Egyptian slaveholder, the one that was beating the Hebrew man. The next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting, and he goes to break it up. And they're like, whoa, 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 don't kill one of us. And Moses is like, oh, no, they know what I've done. Pharaoh puts a bounty out on his head, and he runs away. Moses is gone for a long time. He's married. He's a sheep herder. This is where Moses encounters the burning bush. Here's why I bring all that up. This isn't the burning bush in Moses isn't the interaction between a young man who's still figuring out who he is. This is a dude who's seen some stuff. He's been a part of some things. He has an idea of who he is and what he is called to be doing in the world. And when God speaks through the burning bush and said, I'm sending you to lead your people free from Egypt, which you feel like would be the manifestation of one of his greatest wishes, that he was a part of this disgusting system that he fought against, and now he's like, keep doing that. You're going to go do that again. But we're going to look at there are five times when Moses is like, hey, but what about no? What if I didn't do that? Starting in Exodus 3, verse 11, this is what it says. But Moses said to Pharaoh, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So we're linking these two things. The man who is questioned by Korah and saying, who put you in charge is basically unknowingly telling Moses the things he's already said. Who am I that I should lead these people out of Israel or out of Egypt? And God says, no, no, no. Your identity is tied to my identity. The fact that I'm calling you is what matters. In verse 13, Moses, who's unconvinced, says, so we'll suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Ultimately, you can see here, this is kind of the fear of public speaking. Well, what if I don't have the right answers? What if they ask me, I'm monologuing. I'm doing a whole thing about freedom and end of slavery. And they're like, yeah, but who sent you? What am I going to say? Why would they believe me? In verse 4-1, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? So I say, this is who sent me. And they're like, I don't think that was God. Because Moses is alone at the burning bush, which is pretty good awareness when you're facing a burning bush to be like, people are going to struggle to believe this. What am I going to say about that? In verse 4:10, Moses says to the Lord, and I love this, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue, which I will still submit is the most eloquent way of saying I'm ineloquent ever recorded. I think it would have been way more convincing if he's like, me not talk good. No, but pardon your servant, Lord. Um, <laughs> there's this belief, ultimately, I can't do this. 
I can't speak well. They're not, I'm going to say the things, I'm going to butcher it. They're going to be like, who sent you? And instead of saying, I am, he's going to say, am I? And they're not going to follow me at all. They're not going to believe this thing. And this is the best of them all. Number five in 413, Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. Moses doesn't want to be leading this people. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to be in charge. He didn't volunteer for this position. He didn't work his way up in the economy of rebel leadership so he could one day become general of the rebellion and lead the Israelite people out. This wasn't a part of his career plan. This wasn't his aspirations on his LinkedIn page. This isn't what Moses was trying to do. And yet God called him kicking and screaming into it. Why would that, this Korah saying, it shouldn't be you, it should be all of us. Why and how could that possibly still sting or feel true to Moses? Which granted is reading a lot into his falling face down, but I think it's resonant. I think these stories are connected. All these years later, Moses was the one who oversaw the plagues in Egypt. Moses was the one who led them through the Red Sea. Moses is the one who brought water out of a rock. Moses is the one who has seen manna fall on the ground every day. Moses is the one who saw the quail come in. Moses is the one who's been there for all of it. Moses is the one who brought down the Ten Commandments. Moses is the one who saw the very presence of God walk by him on Mount Sinai. Why could Moses still be questioning it? How many of you have ever heard of imposter syndrome? If you haven't, get ready. This is a term that came up. A couple of psychologists started talking about this and writing an article about it in 1978. Imposter syndrome is identified as a psychological pattern in which an individual doubts their accomplishments and has a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. This is something that maybe you haven't heard of it before, but I think many of us have felt deep within our bones. I know one of the moments I felt it most strongly is my wife had just given birth to our first child. And it was this beautiful, exciting moment. It's the middle of the night. We are surrounded. Like from the moment we had been in, there had been a nurse there checking in on us and checking vitals and doing nursey things. It felt very reassuring. And then a flood of doctors and they made sure that my son was okay. And then they just handed him to us and they left. And I was like, you have no, I don't know what I'm doing. Why would you leave? You feel far more qualified. You should take him until he's out of his more vulnerable ages. Return him to us gladly. We'll take him if we can get some verbal skills here. I felt like I was tricking them. I was fooling them. And one day they were going to come in and be like, is that what you call a swaddle? Give him back. That is not how you do that. I felt deep down like a fraud. You shouldn't trust me in doing this. And it's not just when my son was born. I felt that way in high school when I get my report cards. I felt that way when I was on sports teams. I felt that way in different jobs that I had when they'd give me like more responsibility. I was like, oh my gosh, you have no idea what you're doing. 
<clears throat> am, I, am I really getting a lot of confidence right now? You're like, I should continue listening to this guy. <laughs> One of my favorite shows right now is this show called Nailed It on Netflix. It's like a baking show. Um, it's fun just to have on. Like, it's just kind of on in the background. If you don't know, it's like this French pastry chef, because all pastry chefs should be French. And they show these amazing desserts, and then they give amateurs, like, an hour to replicate it. Um, and then we have a picture of, they did shark. That's a shark cake. And that's what someone created. It's so entertaining. And I would say it's been somewhat cathartic to watch. Because they're, they're trying their very best, but it's not going to look good. And no one really, no one ever thinks it's going to look good. And anything that does happen, they're like, wow, it's kind of impressive that you pulled that off or you put that thing together or you did that. It's like the whole charade of imposters is stripped away. There's no expectation that you have to pretend that you know what you're doing. We all know you don't and then you just do it. And it's kind of freeing to watch people fail so viscerally, so really. And what I love is when they display their work, they always say, nailed it. <laughs> it makes me giggle every time. Uh, because it feels like they demonstrated and showed their failure to everyone next to a professional who really did nail it. And they're okay. It's okay. No one's like, get out of here. You're kicked out of the show. We all kind of understand what's happening. There's a license to fail. There's a license to explore. This is what happens in imposter syndrome. And one of the things that I want to say just for a second, when this first came out in 1978, because I think this is instructive for all of us, they started studying imposter syndrome because of women uh, going into the workforce and early on, imposter syndrome was way more identified in women than men. And they just did a study in 2006 that's still true. And listen to this, because this is fascinating. What they've identified is imposter syndrome in women is, I don't belong here in workforce or in task. And in men, it's, I'm not successful enough. Isn't that fascinating? The assumption from a man, based on our culture and system and society, is, well, of course I belong here. I just may not be good enough here. Imposter syndrome for a woman who has blocked and inhibited those roles for so long is you don't even belong here. This is the cycle and system, what they call the imposter cycle. The first is you are assigned a task. So you're given something to do. And there's two responses to this. One is over-preparation. Like the minute you're assigned a task, think of this in work or in school, in some environment where performance matters or is measured in some way. You start over-preparing and working so hard to do it. The other, which is my preferred method, is procrastination. Uh, it's kind of stressful. I'll get to that later. And they're just two different coping mechanisms of the same thing. What ultimately happens is at some point they turn something in. It's kind of like the cake reveal and nailed it. Nailed it. They show something that they did. And they have a tiny bit of minor relief that the task has passed. 
But this is what's interesting. Those that overprepared believed that their hard work was necessary. They had to do every single bit of preparedness they did leading up to the task. Otherwise, it would have been a total failure. And the people that procrastinated said, I got lucky again. I lucked out. I still remember uh, being in middle school band. I played the trombone. I nailed the sound of an airplane going overhead. It was one of my best things. If you don't know, you just go with the trombone. It's a great move. You should learn it. And I remember they were going down the aisle and they were saying, what note is this? I didn't know about band. I didn't care about band. I hadn't studied or known. And they came to me and I was like, B. And they're like, yes. And went on and I was like, that's the best feeling in the world. I got it right and I didn't have to study at all. That kind of felt like, let's keep this rolling. Let's see how long we can do this. This is what's interesting. Look at this quote that comes next. With every cycle, so you're assigned a task, you either over-prepare or you procrastinate. You have a minor relief from turning it in. You either believe your hard work was necessary to pass or you believe I got lucky. Every cycle, feelings of perceived fraudulence, increased self-doubt, depression, and anxiety accumulate. As the cycle continues, increased success leads to the intensification of feeling like a fraud. It doesn't matter how long you're successful for. It doesn't matter how high a level of success you get. You just feel more and more like a fraud and you don't belong. I'm fooling more and more people or I'm barely, barely getting by. It's always a danger to go into the Bible and psychoanalyze biblical characters. So I say that because I'm asking for permission to do it a bit. I think Moses had all these doubts and questions about his ability to do it and no amount of miraculous things going through him, no amount of God saying, no, you're the one, had anything, had any effect on him saying, oh, clearly I'm the leader. Clearly I'm the one that should be in charge. Now there's something kind of beautiful about that humility, but there's also something kind of gross about that. Because at a certain point, it's not that he's not listening to his own belief on his own value. It's that he's not listening to God's belief in his value. That God has called and equipped him for this moment and this space. So what do we do with that? What do we do for the moments and spaces where we feel like we've been involved, we've done it, whether... It's parenting or being in a relationship or working in a career or having a job or the roles we serve in our family. What do we do when we sit with ourselves, we ultimately believe a lie that we are a fraud? I don't have all the other answers. I know, Scott. But one of them is I think that voice that says you're a fraud, it's worth investigation. It's worth listening to and not to say, why am I a fraud? But to say, why do I keep believing I'm a fraud? Why does this voice keep telling me this? Why does it keep flaring up in these moments in these spaces? Why is it here? I think that voice that you're a fraud is like a gaping maw of the earth coming to swallow us up. And part of the antidote to that 
can be this. God doesn't make imposters. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know the places where you have moments or a deep-seated feeling that you are imposter, but God doesn't make imposters. God made you. Now, can you act like an imposter? Oh, absolutely. But we don't become imposters when we lead into who we are and who God created us to be. The only way we become an imposter is when we're terrified that we are one. Are you with me? The only time we're an imposter is when we're terrified we are one. When we say, this is what I can bring to this situation. This is what I can do. I'm going to lean into the voice that I have, not the voice I don't have. Going back to that fear of public speaking. The worst public speakers are the people that are trying to copy someone else's public speaking. It's not about cadence. It's not about how loud your voice is or how slow your speech is. They tell everyone in public speaking, slow down. Don't. Don't always slow down. You need to change and be aware of the variance of your voice, but you don't just all slow down. We take all these rules and tasks from other people who are successful at things, and we try and adopt them and take them on themselves and say, maybe this will make me successful too. No, it's just making you an imposter. Why? Because you're afraid you are one. You're not an imposter. If you strip it all away, if you pull it all back, what you're going to find is a person that God created that only you can do what is called to be done. Because you're you. There's no other you. And the best way to fight against this idea of imposters is to know that God doesn't make imposters. And when you lean into the reality of who you are, something unique and beautiful can come to life. If you ever feel like an imposter, one of the best words of advice I have, and one of the things that people who feel imposter syndrome use a lot is, why would I do this job or do this thing when someone else has done it better or can do it better? Why would I get up and speak ever? Someone else has said these things and probably said them better than I can. The best words of advice I heard is, but you haven't said it yet. But you haven't done it yet. What's beautiful about that is now we start asking different questions about what can you bring to it that no one else can? How can you bring your experience to bear? How can you bring your reality and who God created you to bear in this world? I want to close with this. We need you. Not an imposter's version of you. Not a faking it of you not your best impression of someone who you think is successful. We need you. Warts and all, failures and all, when you don't do it well and all, because it's all beautiful and necessary. God has made you enough for your life. God has made you enough for this life. You are enough. And my prayer isn't that you would believe that right now. That's too high a task. You don't have to believe it all right now, although I pray that you do. What I hope you're able to take with you is this words as a mantra. God has made me enough for this life. 
God has made me enough for this life. And every task you step into, you feel like an imposter. God has made me enough for this task. God has made me enough for this role. I think it's a mantra that allows us to show up fully to it and allow God to speak through us, to us, and move through us in ways that make the whole world come alive. We don't need cheap versions and imposters' versions of one another. We need you. You're the only one there is. Would you pray with me?